Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Mark, I've got a Statwoody game for you. If you're Splendid. Fire away. Five names here, five cases of unlikely casting in musical biopics, okay? Four of them are real. One is my own invention. Here we go. Are you ready? Roger Daltrey as Franz Liszt. Roger Daltrey as Franz Liszt. Al Pacino as Phil Spector. Al Pacino as Phil Spector. Gary Oldman as Joe Strummer. Gary Oldman as Joe Strummer. Matt Damon as Liberace. And Sissy Spacek as Loretta Lynn. Which one of those is pure invention? That's good. That's good. Matt Damon as Liberace, I've seen. Good film. I've seen that. It's a really good film. It's a fantastic film, actually. And Sissy Spacek as the, as the uh, coal miner's daughter. I another, think it's, another good film. Is another good film. So that's those two crossed off. Gary Oldman's Joe Strummer. Al Pacino's Phil Spector, that exists, I'm sure. As does Roger Daltrey's Franz Liszt. I don't know why I'm saying that, but I just kind of have it in my head. I can picture it. It looks like something out of Barry Lyndon. And I think it's probably, well, I think it's probably Gary Oldman's Joe Strummer, actually. You win. You win. Oh. This was actually triggered by my seeing that Al Pacino played Phil Spector. I thought, my God, I never knew that happened. So Al Pacino did indeed play Phil Spector on an HBO biopic called Spectre, opposite Helen Mirren, who played his lawyer. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and I thought, they sound made up casting choices to me. Al Pacino as Phil Spector. That's great. But clearly I missed it and you didn't. So Wearing I, a succession of presumably absurd yeah, wigs, looking like an exploded mattress. Absolutely. They had the wigs lined up right across the studio. Absolutely. Because Spector's wigs got more and more extravagant, didn't they? They did. 
They did. Okay. Well, we were we, talking about wigs, weren't we? Possible wig wearers the oh other God, day. We were, weren't we? Yes. We were talking about people who dye their hair and <laughs> people who wear. See, I'm. It's unkind to say this, but uh, we're going to say it nonetheless. But we're going to say it anyway. But Cliff Richard, I'm sorry, Dave. Is that a syrup? Is it really? Is it a toupee? I really don't know. He's, the top of his hair looks a different colour from the rest of it. I don't know. <laughs> but then you sent me a picture of Dylan, and Dylan clearly doesn't wear a syrup, but he does dye his hair, and it's just, it's it doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right to me. His hair is that strange shade that McCartney's was. That kind of he, henna When thing, he went it? in for henna, you know. Bill and, Wyman uh, had the same thing for a while. And this is a picture I saw. So uh, Bob Dylan is how old, Mark? 83? 82. Right? 82. Okay. Uh, and this is a picture taken uh, of him at the end of a show the other day. He's touring in the States at the moment. And he just looked absurd. <laughs> the hair just looked absurd. Now, I know he's, you know, he's an 82, 83-year-old bloke, so he's he's not going to look smooth-featured and so forth. But... You know, the hair is a problem, and particularly it made me think of it's round about 60 years this year since Bob Dylan kind of entered my life, really. You know, there's probably making his first visits to the UK and so forth, and there, there were um, always the, the keen interest in the, in the emergence of this um, thrusting young protest singer amongst the kind of uh, the serious media. And you know what this, the the line he used to sing in, I think it's, it's all right, Mara, I'm only bleeding, that used to stand out so much that it used to get a round of applause. Do you know what that line was? I'm going to tell you, Mark, it was even the President of the United oh, yeah. States someday must have to stand naked. And people used to applaud that because it seems an extraordinarily provocative thing to say. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I thought to myself, the man who wrote that line 60 years later yes. is ladling on the Grecian 2000 or whatever it is prior to going on stage, where he will appear in darkness anyway, so nobody's going to see whatever he's done, you know. And presumably, I don't know why he's done it, because he had a brilliant ruse about maybe 10, 15 years ago that all the band used to wear black cowboy hats, yeah. and he used to wear a white one. Oh, yeah, and true. that's kind of how you identified if you were Which miles away at the O2 or whatever, that that was Bob Dylan. And I thought that was a really brilliant move. And also, if you are a bit embarrassed about the fact you're looking a bit craggy, then a big cowboy hat with a big brim is quite a good way of, and also being lit, you know, rather sensitively, can can uh, can mask that. But I don't know why he's done it. McCartney always used to say, I dye my hair because in the distance, you know, playing festivals or whatever, I still look, you know, I've got the Nero jacket, I've got the, the, the Hofner bass, I still kind of look like Paul McCartney. But actually he stopped dyeing his hair and he looks so much better. So much better. Oh, my God. I was thinking about this the other day, that certain people do look fantastic with undyed hair. Don't you think? John oh, McLaughlin in John his McGuire. 80s. John McLaughlin is, I think, 81, and he's on tour. And John McLaughlin, I know we've said this before, he's a lesson to us all in, in you know, the, the macrobiotic diet that he's yeah. presumably been existing on for the, for the last 40 or longer than 40 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously his regime of, I don't know, meditation or whatever he does. And also, the interesting thing about John McLaughlin, shall I tell you the other thing that always looks really good about him? 
whenever you see him photographed, he's smiling. Yeah. He's always smiling. He's always looking like, I'm really happy to be here. It's He's got a lot to smile about, I think. A lot to smile about. Yes. He looks absolutely fantastic. So, you know, if you're going to do a, if you're going to do a list of the kind of 80-plus division of rock stars, I mean, Macca's quite high in that, you know, but... But John McLaughlin is my is my clear leader. He's fantastic in the eighty plus division. Yeah, Absolutely. I think I think the clear winner actually, and a really good example of someone who was always unbelievably good looking, but has got better looking over the years. Joan Byers. Joan Byers. He said, looks absolutely yeah. staggering. I think. And has in the seventies, got- Peter Frampton looks great. But then again, he's got the advantage of starting off by looking like Peter Frampton in the first place. He Peter has undyed hair. Tell you who else, David Byrne. Looks ridiculously good. Really? Yes, I suppose. Oh, yeah, so. It's still so there. How, how old is David Byrne? David Byrne would be 70. What, is he that old? Okay. Oh, I right. think so. Oh, yeah, wow. I think so. Okay. Emmy Lou Harris still looks fantastic. Emmy Lou Harris looks sensational. Nick Lowe looks fantastic. Um, Jimmy Page. Yes, so much better. There was a stage when he used to dye his hair black and just, he looks, he's got it tied back. He looks fantastic. He looks like a sort of, uh, you know, 18th century highwayman now. It's very good. Talking of members of Led Zeppelin, uh, when you look at uh, at Robert Plant nowadays, Robert Plant looks fantastic, but he kind of looks like a burly old Shakespearean actor, doesn't he now? He's got to that point. Well, he looks as if he ought to be yeah. a long-time member of the of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah, probably, he, he's probably played Falstaff in the past. You know, Falstaff's in the rearview mirror. Yes, you know, but um, he looks like a kind of stout yeoman figure, doesn't he? He you know, does leaning he, on a stick. That's he, right. He ought to be the Duke of Buckingham who comes With on, the- and you know, alarms, and you know, and uh, what news from the front, my liege? What <laughs> manner of country is this, Sarah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exit. huge, with, with maybe a, a pewter a beer jug yeah, hanging from a leather belt. Hanging from a leather belt in an exit pursued by a bear at the end of the, <laughs> at the, end of the set, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there, there, are, there still are some people that are an example to us all in just how good they look. But we're saying Bob... Step away from the dye. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So 60 years ago this month, since the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and you and I are old enough gits to kind of remember where we were and how oh, we God, heard about it. Really vividly. Where were you? Well, well, I was at home. My dad used to work in London. He came back on the train with a copy of the Evening Standard. Oh, right. And it was the the London Evening Standard. He bought at Waterloo Station, and there was the headline. And I can remember being, I was whatever I was, nine, I think. And I remember I was thinking that this is 10, I suppose. And this was a serious thing. Absolutely. And my parents talking very gravely about it. But know. Friday evening, I was at home with my mother. I think my father must have been still at work. And uh, and she, I think she heard something on the radio. She said, just put the television on, I think, or something. And uh, turns on the television to say shots had been fired at a motorcade. And somehow I had the idea that it was kind of a traffic thing or it was a crash or something like that. You know, I don't think I, I don't think I knew the expression 
assassinate and so forth. It was so foreign to our experience. But anyway, you know, within half an hour or an hour, it was clear that he had been shot and he was dead. And and then, then followed a weekend when we just sat in front of the television. And, and the television was all kind of grave discussions and uh, and classical music recitals, recordings of, you know, so sort of normal normal programming was shelved. And so we sat watching it all Saturday, and we were still watching it on Sunday, when, of course, um, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot live on television, which is still absolutely... I think it was, right. wasn't it? The cameras were rolling, weren't they? Absolutely, they were rolling. And I've just been reading um, Vincent Bugliosi's book, Parkland, which is a kind of minute, sort of minute-by-minute minute recounting of the events of those four days right up to the funeral and so forth. The funeral was on the Monday. And, um, and I came upon a little thing in a footnote which I thought would appeal to you and the listeners, and so I, I, I'm going to share it now. So when Lee Harvey Oswald was transferred from the Dallas police headquarters to go to the, the county jail on the Sunday... Um, they were taking him down in the lift, down to the, into the basement uh, of the headquarters. And there were loads of newspaper men and radio and television cameras there and so forth. And, and in those days, Dallas had two daily newspapers. And so the daily newspapers were represented by their reporters and also their photographers, and so they had two photographers. And in those days, it's before motor drives on cameras. So these photographers are both lining up, thinking, well, he's going to come out of a lift there, and then he's going to come here and disappear into a police wagon there. I probably only got an opportunity to take one picture. And so they line up. Oswald comes out of the lift, is moved towards the camera. And you can hear people in the background, he's here, he's here, he's here. One photographer closes his, his shutter. Then the other photographer closes his shutter half a second later. The first photographer gets a picture of Lou Harvey Oswald surrounded by minders. The second photographer gets the picture of him being struck by the bullet. That's right. Grimacing. The second photographer wins the Pulitzer Prize. The first photographer is haunted by this for the rest of his life. Half a second out. Probably less than. Oh, my Lord. You know, because you've only got one opportunity. Can you imagine yeah. if, you know, if you're a press photographer, particularly those days, you know, how you just... It's all that you've just got one opportunity, haven't you? <laughs> that is a fantastic story. <laughs> oh my god! I've got a feeling John Peel invaded. He was there into that. Yeah, he was there. I remember interviewing him, and he told me that. I mean, he was there. He, he wasn't there at the shooting. Something. He was there. I think he was there on the Friday or the Saturday um, when they were whole. Oswald was kind of brought into. That's what answer, he brought into. And press, press, press He got yeah. in with a. By just pretending he was from yeah. 
uh, a Dallas newspaper and he had an English accent. He said he was covering it for him. I think, I'm not sure he didn't write a little piece, actually. I think yeah. he did. Yeah. But, uh, oh, that's incredible. Isn't that something? So anyway, you were going to say something about Led Zeppelin. We were talking about Led Zeppelin earlier. Well, Led Zeppelin, there was just a story which I thought was a kind of complete non-story at first, actually. It was about, I saw it in The Guardian, then I saw it in New York Times. I saw it was getting picked up all over the place. That they had discovered the person, the identity of the person on the cover of Led Zeppelin 4. And uh, I thought this was a bit of a non-story, so I was thinking, well, they would have just, why didn't, if anybody really wanted to know, why didn't they get hold of hypnosis or whoever it was that designed it and ask them? But actually, of course, nobody knew. Because Robert no, Plant no, no. had found that picture. That's the picture, everybody listening will remember it, of the, um, of the old man stooped with a load of, well, they're reeds, really, Thatcher's reeds yeah, yeah, yeah. in a bundle on his back, and there's no words on the sleeve, there's nothing saying it's Led Zeppelin or the name of the record or anything. There's no indication of what that picture is, well, they didn't know. But Plant just had it and they liked it. And um, But no, the, what was happening was that the, a researcher called Brian Edwards from the University of West England was going through some old Victorian photo album in some research capacity, and he said he suddenly recognised his familiar face. And there was a caption saying this guy was called Lot Long. Yes. He was born in Mere, which is near whatever it is. It's Wiltshire. It's near Salisbury, I suppose. Shaftesbury. It's near Shaftesbury. That's right, yeah. In 1823. And he was a Wiltshire Thatcher. He died in 1893. And uh, that was his identity. I thought it was really amazing, actually, that this tiny little picture that he was so familiar all over the world. No one had the faintest idea who he was. And there have been lots but, of other examples of that, haven't there? This is so interesting because it's the kind of thing that can only happen with the cover of a 12-inch LP. It doesn't apply on CDs at all. doesn't apply on cassettes. doesn't apply on the covers of books. It's that you, as a member of the public, if you like, could somehow appear on the cover of an album that could go around the world and remain in people's consciousness for decades, and you could, as a consequence, become famous, even though you didn't know it was happening at all. And the classic case of this is the guy on the cover of the Beatles, Abbey Road. If you look in, in I think, on the right-hand side of the road. Yeah, there's a guy on the pavement, isn't there? There's a guy on the pavement. There's a police car, a police yeah. van, and then in front of it, there's a guy on the, on the pavement who's turning and looking at the photographer and looking at what's going on. And this was an American tourist, wasn't it? Uh, and I think he only died about 10 years ago or something. Yeah, quite recently. And when he died, there was an obituary in the New York Times. Brilliant <laughs> idea. He's great claim to fame. Of course. Was he been on the cover of Happy Road? We said it was extraordinary. The other one is, what is but it? But also, uh, just, just if you hold on. that thought, he would have had no idea what was going on. No. He would have assumed, maybe he knew it was the Beatles, maybe not. He didn't look terribly hip, did he? No. But anyway, no, no. he would have got back at some stage in his life. Somebody would have said, Have you seen this record? And he <laughs> said, Oh, I was there one day when, hang on a second. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he would have suddenly realized that was him, which is incredible, don't you think? It is. And um, what's the other one we were talking about? The ball, uh, the. Um, oh, John there's the, the, Beng the, the, the Bengali balls, the, 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 the Indian musicians who were bought over by, I think, I think it was by Grossman, wasn't it? Albert Grossman, who managed Dylan. Because that's the cover, this is an amazing cover of, of John Wesley Harding. It's the most random cover ever. There is Bob Dylan. He's got these two Indian musicians with him who are not on the record and not credited, and no one knows who they are. And behind <laughs> him, 
is a local stonemason and carpenter called Charlie Joy, who just happens to be in the picture. And uh, and in fact, as Sid Griffin once pointed out to us on a, on a, on a podcast, you can see the, the cowboy hat below them of somebody else in the picture who's obviously crouching down. So it's a completely random snap. But for some reason, Dylan just thought, and it works, that I'm going with that. That's the picture I like. And when I bought that record, I, I, you know, and I was whatever, 12, I kind of, no, a bit older, 14, I thought that that, I thought that must be the band. I assumed that was Kenny Buttry. And right. Charlie McCoy, and I think whoever the guy was who played the, played oh, the steel. Right. There was yeah, one yeah. on the middle. There were four musicians credited on the record, I think. Pete I just think that was the band. It's extraordinary. And, uh, yeah, and, and and still, I mean, the balls of Bengal, known in the world of kind of folklore, I suppose, but uh, that's what made them world famous. Just the Yeah, that people got to know over a long period of time. That's who they were, you know. And it, the other thing that strikes me about the 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 discovery of the chap on the cover of Led Zeppelin Four is there will be no more mysteries in popular music, will there? Because they will all be they'll all be they'll be uncovered eventually. They'll all be solved. They'll all absolutely every last one will be solved because. Look how long that has taken. So that record came out... 52 in, years ago. <laughs> 52 years later, some academic looking through a load of stuff goes, oh, hang on, and then, and then goes, you know, and does all, the, does all the let work and, uh, and works out who it is. So they'll, you know, and I, here I'm going to quote once again what Tom Waits said... He said, uh, before the internet, we used to wonder. I missed the wondering. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. I saw a little bit, I saw the first episode, in fact, of the, of the Robbie Williams uh, documentary on uh, Netflix. It's sort of part of Ridley Scott's production, which is really interesting, actually, because actually in some ways it's quite similar to the David Beckham. They're quite similar, two kind of working class guys about the same kind of time and huge amounts of success and a lot of grief from uh, from the outside world. But the Robbie Williams one, it's a very claustrophobic picture, and mostly he sits there interviewed on his bed in his underpants and just a T-shirt, reviewing his life on a laptop, looking at the, looking at his life back and commenting on it, you know. And it's just extraordinary. There's things that I didn't quite take on board. One was that he was only 16 when he joined the group. Did you know that? He was 16? No, I didn't. So he was four or five years younger than some of the others. Uh, he's obviously oh, really? Was he yeah, really? Yeah, there was one that one of them, I can't remember which one, Howard, I think, is about five years older than him, nearly six years older than him. So that makes a real difference, actually. It does. Obviously, completely emotionally unable to cope with it. He's very resentful of the fact that Gary Barlow is the one who is kind of properly managed. Gary Barlow is the goose that lays the golden eggs. Yeah. He's the one who's writing the songs. And he becomes incredibly jealous of this of his talent and uh, and resentful and, and constantly trying to kind of trip him up, you know. And uh, it gets to the point where he's drinking a bottle of vodka uh, before he goes into rehearsals. And they just kind of sling him out of the group. You think, this is extraordinary. So then you go from this, he's... He's, I mean, we always say George Harrison was only 26, 27 when the Beatles ended. This guy was only 21. So he's 21 years old and his career has ended. And yeah. then he tries to write songs and he gets to go to Guy Chambers and they produce a record. He doesn't do very well. Then he has Angels is a hit. 
And then you have this incredible bit where he's going out and playing to 88,000 people at Glastonbury. And you see him going on stage and he's absolutely terrified because this is the kind of world centre of kind of indie rock, isn't it? Of left yeah. field rock. And there's yeah. this pop star going on and he wins them over, you know. And uh, it just made me think that his life is entirely, life is for most pop stars, is either worrying about this sense of failure or briefly celebrating some kind of success while desperately thinking how on earth you can sustain it. Yeah. And I thought how, how unenviable it was. And we absolutely love these people. They, they entertain us and they, they make life uh, thoroughly, um, they improve everything. But, but you, you think how many of them would you, would you change places with? You, can you think of any, any musicians who you'd actually literally swap your life with? Because I only think about one or two. I mean, I remember thinking someone like Christine McVie had done a great life and she'd been in Fleetwood Mac and she'd retired. She was going to be rattling around in a big old house. And then came back. But then she came back. She just couldn't quite deal with it. It's like Bill Berry. Bill Berry retired and yeah. d- d- became a kind of farmhand on the hay farm that he had in Georgia. I noticed that Bill Berry actually came back about a year ago, formed a group, formed a little super group called the Bad Ends. Can't I was, keep away. I, I was talking to uh, Peter Carlin, uh, who's a friend of the pod, American, yeah. um, you know, well, Portland, Seattle-based, you know, um, uh, writer. And he, I was asking you about Bill Berry, because he's working on a book about R.E.M., I think. And uh, I asked him about Bill Berry, and he said, oh, he's in about five groups nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just... Plays in the locality. He's perfectly happy doing that, you know. So he's he's got his ton of money. You know, they're not they're not going to be forced to go back on the road. And I suppose that's come to us. He is. That does sound quite enviable, actually, because he it just does. doesn't want to get back involved. No, so Stuart Copeland's another one. Stuart Copeland's done great stuff, I think, and he's just very employable and just looks as though he doesn't have any great chip on his shoulder about stuff. I don't know, but there aren't many. The one I think I really envy is Donald Fagan. Donald Fagan, I think Donald Fagan's got this thing where. I can't imagine he's constantly, you know, recognised. I, I, I don't. He's not required to be self-promotional all the time. He's achieved fantastic stuff. He's written a wonderful book, and I just imagine that Donald Fagan sitting around drinking martini, having impossibly witty conversations with people at dinner. I think politics. He, I, I think oh, he's no. on. I think he's on tour. Actually, I think you're. Oh, right. no, is he really? I wow. think you'll find he's on tour as Steely Dan. He is Steely Dan nowadays, and they will be playing some casinos somewhere, you know, with members of the Boz Gags band or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, a bunch of blokes in their 70s because that's what they want to do more than anything else. And also, the, the other thing about musicians is, in my experience, they're rubbish at home. They're, oh, yeah. They Look just... They clutter up the place. Yeah, they cannot, be, they they cannot away, deal with home. Feet. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to wash up and cook, and why should they? <laughs> no. They just want people looking after them and making fun of them for all day. And they want people to look at them, you know, and, and acclaim them. You know, it's a kind of, um, you know, once you've had that, I think it must be very, very difficult to turn your back on it. But in terms of, you know, swapping my life, I don't know. You know, because I can't think in that I would have to, I have to tell my wife that I've swapped. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're going to get, you're going to get. Randy Newman's going to move in, and I'm going to move out. <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah, no, I, I think you'd have to factor all that out. This is straight life swap. Don't complicate these things by worrying about uh, pension plans and <laughs> grandchildren. No, 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 no. There's nobody that you just think that would be a perfect. That's because the thing about Donald Fagan is, I feel like I feel he's got nothing to prove. Most most people, I feel like you know, even McCartney a lot actually. There's McCartney. Oh, We've talked God. about this pod many times. McCartney, you know. What a fantastic life, etc. But he he is he is obsessed with the idea of maintaining it, isn't he? Yeah, maintaining his profile, keeping going, keeping in the public eye. And the the people you envy, the people who can quite happily just knock it on the head. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think yeah. I've, I've done what I set out to do and I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, Leonard Cohen famously, he, um, didn't he, he kind of retired, what, in his 50s or something? He did. Went and lived on Mount Baldy in California with a load of monks, didn't he, really? He did. I'm I'm just going to devote myself to um, contemplation, spiritual pursuits. And and then he's... And then somebody came up the mountain and tapped him on the shoulder, (laughs) woke him from his reverie (laughs) and said two things. Firstly, what's the meaning of life? And secondly, (laughs) secondly... Bad news, your accountants legged it with $6 million or whatever, and you're broke. <laughs> so you're going to have to go on the road, and which so is the best thing that ever happened to him. And then he, he then immediately switched tack quite happily, didn't he? He did. Let's go on the road. Let's make more money than I've ever made before because people are now paying more and it's easier to go on the road and the technology is better and so forth. And he made so much money, he couldn't give it up, could he really? No. You know. No, he just kept stop. touring, kept touring and touring. I've, I don't know if I've, I've um, discussed with you, because I talked to David Remnick, the New Yorker editor, about his book, which was largely a collection of pieces that appeared in the New Yorker about legendary musicians, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, and so forth. 
in their kind of in their third age, you know, in their retirement or semi-retirement. And one of the most telling pieces in there is about Leonard Cohen. And he was introduced to Leonard Cohen by a mutual acquaintance or something, somebody that Leonard Cohen had a lot of time for. And so he went and spent time with Leonard Cohen, uh, who had stopped being on the road, but it was kind of living in a house in Los Angeles, I think, being pretty much kind of kind of managed by his son and his daughter who kind of, they all lived around the corner, you know. Yeah. It was like a, like a compound devoted in, in, to, to kind of maintaining the, the celebrity and the, and the life of the, of, the great, of the great, you know, father figure of the, of the family. And uh, anyway, he went and spent time with Leonard Cohen and Leonard Cohen was just absolutely brilliant. He's, he's kind of, um, you know, his take on things was endlessly interesting and, and oh, he's so he was fantastic. They, they, Radio Six uh, Six Music very sweetly repeated a, a 2007 interview I'd done with him uh, for Radio Two on the on the anniversary of his death, which was last I think on Tuesday of last week. And uh, it just I dug out the old copy of Word that I'd um, I'd I'd written it up in actually, and just to, to have a look at it, he was so extraordinary. He took asked. Tim Ferriss, I did this thing, I can tell you this, when I met him, I, I bought a copy of his, uh, a book of his poetry and I said, I slid it across the table and said, look, I've been, my wife absolutely adores you and, you know, I, uh, I've been very happily married for 25 years and if you were to sign this to my wife, I'd be very happily, happily married, guaranteed for another 25 years. And he had the good grace to pretend this doesn't happen all the time. He looked kind of surprised and touched, you know. But I asked him various things. I asked him, I said, have we trained ourselves as a society to believe that melancholy produces better art? And this was his response, right? He says, nobody has a life that worked out the way they wanted it to work out. We all begin as the hero of our, old, our own dramas in centre stage, and inevitably life moves us out of the centre stage, defeats the hero, overturns the plot and the strategy, we're left on the sidelines wondering why we no longer have a part or want a part in the whole damn thing. So everyone's experienced this. When it's presented to us sweetly, the feeling moves from heart to heart. And we feel less isolated. And we feel part of the great human chain, which is really involved with the recognition of defeat. That's a fantastic answer, isn't it? It's literally as he said it. It's all about fallibility. His thing is that fallibility is where we all meet. You get similar responses from Ozzy Osbourne, I found. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Zodiac mind warp tends to. <laughs> that is fantastic. The, um, David Rangnook was telling me, he's written about this in his book, if I give him huge points for writing about this in his book. He made an arrangement with Leonard Cohen to meet him the following day or they were going to have a break and then he was going to meet him the following day at another point in time. And uh, and so he turned up at the appointed time to find that Leonard had expected him an hour earlier. And then he was on the receiving end of the mother and father of a dressing down oh, from, wow. mother, from Leonard Cohen. How dare you waste my time? You know, my, my time is really precious. And David, the editor of the New Yorker, 
Pulitzer Prize winner himself, yeah. actually, had to stand there like a naughty schoolboy yeah. and just take it from Leonard Cohen. And and I thought so funny really you'd think of Leonard Cohen as being incredibly philosophical and forgiving. No, not at no. all. Not at all. Not at all. You see, that's the thing about all these guys, you know, Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, any of these people. They take themselves very seriously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's also, the other thing was he's so competitive. And again, I was being really naive. I thought, I thought he can't be competitive. Leonard Cohen just sitting there chewing a chewing a feather quill, <laughs> dipping it into the ink whenever he feels <laughs> the muse is visiting him. Not remotely. He talked about how he'd, uh, he'd had a conversation with Bob Dylan and he asked Bob Dylan, I said, how long did it take you to write songs? Which is the kind of questions that songwriters ask each other. Fair enough. Yeah. And Dylan said, oh, I don't know. I said, today. Sometimes I can do it in 15 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, you know, maybe half an hour, you know. And he said he was mortified because it would taken him eventually five years to write Hallelujah. I mean, obviously, he, this was something he kept putting down and picking up again. I mean, it was five years to produce the 80 verses of, of Hallelujah. He was so competitive. He talked about Columbia didn't put out one of the records that had Hallelujah on it. They just didn't tell him they were going to put, didn't put it out. They just he went to look at their schedule and it wasn't there. He told me about living with Joni Mitchell. They had this love affair. They lived together briefly in Los Angeles. And he said, uh, I said, how is it living with, uh, with Joni Mitchell? He said, uh, he said, it's like living with Beethoven. He said, he said, it was, <laughs> he said it was absolutely agony. He said, in the morning, she'd get up in the morning and kind of paint a, paint a fantastic portrait, then sit down at the piano or the, uh, or the lute or something, or the, or the you know, the, 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 the guitar. I'd just knock out some absolute masterpiece. Then go off and have lunch. And you just think, this is just awful, you know. You remember that story of... Um when Joni Mitchell met Graham Nash for the first time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like in late 60s or whatever, Graham Nash. I think he's still in the hall. He's probably yeah. at, at this point. Yeah. He must find himself in, in Canada and she's there and it's arranged that they will meet. And she comes to his hotel room with a guitar, with a guitar and plays pretty much 12 songs. Yeah. <laughs> she plays, you know... I don't know which songs to the song to the seagull and clouds and you know probably both sides now and you know that song about the medway and uh, and um, the midway sorry not the medway yeah um, and um, you just thought at that stage she's not really all that famous although she's kind of getting there but just imagine <laughs> you know. What kind of drive do you have to have to sit down in front of another musician and say, I'm not going to hit you with 12 songs that are going to make you feel like giving up? You know what I mean? Because what's he going to do at the end of it? Go, oh, and I hear, uh, here's King Midas in reverse. <laughs> well, he did feel like giving up. <laughs> I've interviewed him. He told me it was absolutely heartbreaking. She would roll out of bed, sit at the piano, bang out some tune and he just thought this is terrible and actually he was better far better than she was at the time yeah you just feel he was being overtaken you know but you one know more, so, go one, on uh, I was yeah, yeah. one more Leonard Cohen uh, yeah, yeah. I asked him I asked him for his uh, his favorite line in any song and why and he said my favorite line said was in in Blueberry Hill it's just so good he says um, which Fats Tommy actually didn't write did he actually but anyway they've gone from me Dave Bartholomew wrote it, I think. Is it Vincent Rose, Larry Stock? I can't remember. Somebody, I knew. Oh, right, okay, and he said, um, 
He said, the moon stood still on, on Blueberry Hill. He said, you can just see that full moon suspended. You just want to gaze at it. It stops the mind spinning. I think what we like about music and what we like about art in general is that enterprise where it stops our minds from spinning because we're always all over the place. And a good song and a good lyric is a movie. It will focus and calm and confer significance on this completely bewildering reality that all of us live in. Such a good answer, don't you think? It's just wonderful. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. And we're joined by another birthday guest, Peter Pettit. Peter, very nice to see you. And happy very birthday nice to see is you, it, today, is it? Is that right? It is today. It is a big birthday. It is the 60th birthday. Uh, so we've, uh, we've mere, a mere youngster, as people were saying. Yeah, to I dimly night. remember that. Do you? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> only, a few, only a couple of years ago. Um, so we are down in San Diego where uh, my daughter is at university. Uh, but my, my fantastic wife has, has organized this whole week, weekend of festivities. So we're going to go to the horse races today. We're going to go uh, hiking tomorrow. We're going to do all sorts of things which she's organized. When we have people who've come in from the East Coast, West Coast, sounds like a Beach Boys song, doesn't it? Um, uh, UK. So we have about 35 people here who are My God, very that's kindly committing to me and joining me and, and everything. So I'm Good I'm, for I'm you. Very, very oh, that's that. brilliant. We feel privileged to be part of it. Well, I hope this is the highlight. So <laughs> this is clearly, clearly the highlight of what is otherwise going to be a very dull weekend. It is. Uh, is horse your, racing in San Diego, please. Yeah, your, Boring. Your, it is yes. your opportunity to throw a log on the fire, which is the the ever rumbling discourse of word in your ear. What do you want to? What do you want to raise? Well, it, it's it's just an observation, really, from a couple of concerts that we've been to this year. Both both very different in their own way, but they had a similarity. So, so the first concert was Rod Stewart in Las Vegas in May. Right. Um, I mean, Las Rod Stewart in, in Vegas is always sounds slightly incongruous, and it, and it was in many ways because you had a sort of however old he is with all these showgirls on the stage and oh really, had showgirls? Oh brilliant! Yes, he had showgirls. It was very in his elements. Very Vegas. He 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 chose the soundtrack very much um, with the audience in mind. So I mean, there wasn't a, a version of sailing, for example, because sailing was never popular over here. No, but some some of the others were were, were big hits. Um, but what was even more incongruous was the fact that the audience there was you know a lot of t- people in tuxes and, and long evening dresses and things like that. But there were pockets of very animated and. Uh, in, um, uh, loud celtic fans you're right who who basically were there to say it was the following day i think it was about 4 30 in the morning vegas time celtic were about to win the premier league in scotland right. and as you know rod stewart's a huge celtic fan Certainly. so you had this kind of overriding um, sense that he just wanted to get off stage and get a couple of hours <laughs> tip before getting up to to watch celtic uh win the premier league which they they duly did um, but as I say, it was rather weird having all these you know, kind of quite well dressed people and these then these pockets of, of Celtic fans in their Celtic shirts yeah. who were, were were very animated and, and enjoying themselves at the time. The, the the other one that we went to not that long afterwards was Noel Gallagher at the Greek Theatre in Los Angeles, and, and this was the night before Manchester City won the Champions League in in, in Europe, and. 
Noel Gallagher is not shy of, of, of showing his Manchester City credentials. So there yeah. was a, a mannequin of the uh, of the, the manager Pep Guardiola on stage, very visible. There was also a big flag that was draped over the, the drum set. Uh, we had a very disgruntled Manchester United fan sitting behind us who was Good. not happy at all <laughs> of this overt display. Excellent display. Um, but we also knew that Noel was playing in San Diego the night afterwards. Um, so we were trying to work out where's he going to watch the match, and we thought, well, he probably won't risk staying in LA and then having to get down there, especially if he's if, if they won. So our assumption was he might go to San Diego and watch it maybe in a hotel room or something like that. But indeed, about an hour before the match, Twitter footage of him in a bar with the fans in San Diego started to emerge. Yeah. And 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 this yeah, lots and lots of people were posting selfies with him and you know uh, his reactions during the match. Of course, they won. So it ended up with this huge impromptu karaoke session of "Don't Look Back in Anger" uh, with 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 Noel leading the chorus. Absolutely. Um, I, there's plenty of footage of that on Twitter. I sent Alex I've seen it, a, link, yeah. a link to one of them, which is absolutely fantastic. We we kind of regret not not taking the chance and, and sort of driving down to San Diego and seeing if we could find out which bar he was in, uh, but but I suppose my log therefore is you know having experienced that can can, can both of you remember a particular concert or occasion where sport was a a, a, a dominating theme. Well, on the Celtic front, I can remember seeing uh, Simple Minds playing Ibrox Park. Oh, really? In 1986, I think we were making a little film for Old Grey Whistletest and and then raising a, 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 a um, an, an Irish flag, which is extremely controversial because, of course, it's a, it's a Ranger stadium and uh, the roots of uh, Celtic are actually Irish. So that was pretty... But uh, no, apart from that, not really. I mean, I remember, I remember seeing Rod Stewart kicking footballs into the crowd at some festival. I think mm. it was Wheelie. But Dave, were you there when, when Elton John played at Watford? I was, I was at Watford when Elton John had just become chairman, I think. This must have been about 1974, 75. And he did a benefit, I think, for Watford at Vicarage Road. And um, on a Sunday afternoon, I think I'm right in saying. And he did the entire performance dressed in a hornet suit. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, of course, the kind of, you know, the, 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 the Watford uh, mascot, you know. So I couldn't help thinking that was a pretty strange thing for a pop star to do, you know. He didn't just wear it at the beginning. He wore it all the way through, I think I'm right in saying. It had a big spike so in the tail, didn't it? Your song, <laughs> Candle in the Wind and everything, <laughs> still, still played, by, <laughs> played by a man dressed as a hornet, you know. And um, the other thing that Mark and I were just talking about is that, is that you know, 1966, when England won the World Cup, British pop music conquered the world. English pop music conquered the world. And yet, find me a single picture of a British pop star alongside Bobby Moore, Martin Peters, <laughs> Jeff Hurst. Or it, those two things were in completely different worlds. In those right. Days. And it wasn't fashionable. We were saying it wasn't really fashionable at the time. And also Bobby, Bobby Charlton particularly didn't really look... Young and fabulous. He looked kind yeah. of an older generation compared with the kind of people who might have wanted to pose with him. That all happened after they won the World Cup. In fact, it was the next, it was the next World Cup along in 1970. Well, and also the interesting thing about England and the World Cup in 1966, no, there is no song. There is not an England right. song. 
Right. They did. So they that started, was 1970, they, that started. 1970, back home yeah. is where it started. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and it just gives you gives you an idea of how kind of commercially underdeveloped sport was in those days. And uh, whereas, you know, he started to change in the late season. You know who changed it first of all before the faces? He's Pink Floyd, really. Because okay. Pink Floyd always played a lot of football, didn't they? And isn't there one of their album covers got a picture of them lined up in kind of Arsenal gear, I think. Um, you know, they used to play on the, on the, on those pictures on Market Road in Islington. And uh, You'll Never Walk Alone, isn't that a period? It's on? You'll Never Walk Alone, sung by the Liverpool crowd. Isn't yeah. that on one of their albums? I think I'm right in saying. It is. And yeah. so when Liverpool won the European Cup, I remember John Peel starting his programme with playing that. But but Rod Stewart, as you say, Rod Stewart was the first person to, to really make a big feature of it, uh, you know, kicking out the footballs and so forth. Um, and, uh, you now know... Now it's compulsory. Now You've it's compulsory. To team, Everybody's got to support. Whether you're a politician support. or a musician or anybody, actually. Yeah, yeah. You've got yeah. to support somebody. It wasn't always like that. So, well, uh, thanks for for your log on the phone. No, of course. And it's lovely to speak to you both, and um, thank you for entertaining us throughout the year. Uh, well, thank you. Well, thank you for being such a loyal supporter. Well, go ahead. Enjoy the yeah. terrible disappointment of the rest of your birthday <laughs> celebration. It'll all be downhill. We will be to uh, toasting you guys and everyone else. Um, it's a great day, so uh, we're certainly going to have some, uh, some fun. But thank you once again. Fantastic. All right. Cheers. Nice to talk to you, Peter. Bye-bye. The Word Podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. Okay, and we welcome another birthday Patreon supporter, uh, Michael Sketch. How are you doing, Michael? When was the birthday? Uh, very well, thank you, David. Uh, thank you very much. The birthday was last Sunday, and... Right. Uh, uh, relatively casual and calm affair, um, which befits the uh, the grand old age I'd reached. I think yeah, absolutely, that's quite right. <laughs> no, nobody wants any surprises or anything like that. You do. No, and one thing I've learned from from you, good gentlemen, is that uh, that that a good afternoon or evening out is preferable to a night out. Yeah, you know, definitely. Definitely. You don't want to start too late and you don't want to finish too late either. Absolutely, definitely. Absolutely. We were, definitely. I was talking to an old mate the other day who had a sixty sixth birthday who said uh, they can only, only face one event during the day now, and then they just want to go home in the evening and just sit and watch the telly. That's fair enough. I Absolutely. totally understand. Couldn't agree so, It's traditional on these occasions that we invite you to throw a log on the, on the fire of the, of the word in your ear discourse. What would you like to contribute? Well, David, uh, I, um, last year when we chatted, I'd just been to see ABBA, uh, oh right, the, course, the Avatar right. show, which yes. I don't know whether you've been yet. No, um, been. I'm still afraid been. not. And I know I'd really like it if I did. And there's I no excuse for not going. But I remember you talking about it. Yeah, I think you would. So um, I was wondering whether we could discuss whether you know who, who's going to be next, uh, or indeed will there even be a next Avatar type uh, show? Uh, I thought maybe. You know, I think when Queen or what's left of Queen play live now, they have a, 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 a kind of a duet with Freddie Mercury going on. Not sure, I haven't seen it myself, but I'm not sure whether that particularly works. And then I, I was struck by Madonna uh, recently when I watched a couple of YouTube clips uh, who's, who's singing at the O2 to a backing track. She's got dancers with her, but she's singing to a backing track now, uh, obviously reaching a fair old age herself. And then, of course... 
there's Sir Bob who who goes on and on. And, uh, you know, I guess the never ending tour will come to an end at some point. Um, and of course, the Stones, you know, now now in their 80s and and, uh, you know, still going. But for how much longer? And I just wonder whether anybody else will do it. But what isn't that isn't it in the main it's sustained by the idea of theatre? You know, the thing about ABBA is that's a fantastic show. There's something going on all the time. The two girls, the two blokes, all the paraphernalia. And Madonna would be perfect, but Beyonce would be perfect. Pet Shop Boys would probably be perfect. But it, people like Bob Dylan, I just can't imagine you could sustain people's interest because there's none of that. Stones, possibly, actually, because there's props and there's backdrops and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. What do you think, Dave? Does I, it I, rock I, music? I, I can't help but wonder if ABBA is the only case of this where it where it works because there's just something about ABBA there there's sort of glorious symmetry of ABBA two blokes two girls all the same height all n- knocked it on the head when they were what 35 or something like that you know and and, and left us with that idea of this is what they are they're in their early 30s forevermore and that can be preserved and um, and also their songs, it strikes me, as time goes by, their songs become more poignant than they were at the time. Yeah. And they just clearly just suit that kind of treatment in a way that I just, I sit there and think, oh, the Jackson 5 or whatever, you know, the Bee Gees. Could you do that? And I think no, it hasn't got no, the depth. I'm not sure you could. Not really. the emotional depth. No, I don't think it. I don't think it has. And uh, and also Abba, <clears throat> they had one era, didn't they? Or it seemed to me, you know, you could draw Abba, couldn't you? Nobody would say, "Are you drawing late Abba or early Abba?" It's Abba. You know what yeah. I mean? Whereas. Yeah. Even, you know, the Bee Gees or whatever had loads of different eras. And, you know, they were in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and 50s, whatever. Um, and uh, I just don't think quite lends itself to the same treatment. And also, when you come to the, the ticklish business of it costs a fortune to do this, therefore you've got to believe that you're going to get your money back. It's yeah. got to be somebody whose appeal is really wide, really broad. I and think that's it. I think that's a really good point. I mean, the eye-watering cost of it um, could be prohibitive. And I think having been to see the Abbott one, I think the, the very fact that you haven't seen them on stage for a very long time, uh, if at all, because or I... possibly not, ever, actually. Or yeah, possibly ever, ever absolutely. Yeah. And and it was just dro- jaw-dropping when you did when they did appear. Uh, yeah. It was completely jaw-dropping. And, of course... They are all still alive and yes. were able to participate in the making of it by donning the suits and which makes a difference. Yeah. That makes a huge difference. Yeah, makes a difference to the way you feel about it. Doesn't that's it? another. That's another example of you've got to pick a group who would be prepared to choreograph a show mm. themselves at that level, of which there yeah. can't be very many contenders. Yeah. Well, there's certainly nobody rushing to do it, is there? It doesn't, doesn't seem to be. No, it doesn't seem to be. I think the I think the expense probably puts a lot of people off. You know, um, but you know, I think these these acts will stay with us. You know, um, 
forever, really, you know, because there is what what what's interesting to me about all this is the is the kind of hunger amongst the population to hear ABBA and to continue to enjoy those things. And, and you know, they're more popular now, it seems to me, than yeah. they were in, in the in the seventies yeah. in their supposed pomp, you know. Yeah, the other well, thing they I appeal wondered, to everybody, don't they? Or, yeah. you know, the, the kind of people who pretended not to like them at the time have been completely won over. Yeah. The other thing I wondered was if you look at what you two have just done, oh, where, right, yes. where they've yeah. got where, where they've got an enormous show, but if you see, I've watched the clips of it, and actually the stage and them is really quite small, uh, tiny part of the show itself, and the. The show is really what's on the inside of that big globe thing. Sphere. Yes. Yeah. And, and I wonder if that's where things are going um, in the future, where the actual people or the stage itself is tiny, but the the effects and the performance, if you like, is in the uh, is in the filming. It's, really. the, it's the theme parkification of yes. popular music. That's what That's it is. That's the word. Theme parkification. <laughs> theme parkification. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue, that one does, doesn't it? It does. Uh, and uh, that, watch this space because there's going to be more of that kind of thing. Well, yeah. look, thanks very much, Michael, for... Um, You're very welcome. ...throwing that log on the fire. And uh, happy birthday as of last week. And, uh, you know, don't stay up too late tonight. Go to bed early. <laughs> That's my advice. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.